So we're first going to go to Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, just two verses. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then if you would turn over to Romans 3, we're going to look at just a few verses, Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. And this is actually continuing the same thought that's left over from the first two verses. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no, no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for this time that we could look in and unpack your word. Father, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds this morning. We seek spiritual understanding and nourishment. We ask that you would grant that this morning to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Before we break this down, let's first set up the purpose for our study. I want to ask you a question. How inquisitive are you? How inquisitive. How many of you would call yourselves analytical? You want to just understand what's going on. You're not satisfied with just being told something. You want to know the how. You want to know the why. More specifically, you want to know how things work. When I was a kid, I was like that. Well, many would say I'm still like that. But when I was a kid, I was like that. My dad was a machinist for Crossman air guns. He made parts for BB guns and air rifles at the manufacturing plant that he worked at. Many of you know my grandfather. I've talked a lot about my grandfather in recent years. He was a fruit farmer, mostly apples. What they had in common is they each had a garage that was filled with these wonderful, glorious tools. They were both skilled at making things, fixing things, and keeping things going. Of course, it took a lot more than just the tools that they had to keep things going. They, they had to have knowledge. They had to have understanding. Dad needed to know how the machines worked so that he could fix them or build tools for them. Grandpa needed to keep his tractors and his farm equipment going to produce those Wonderful apples. Neither of them had a college education. But both of them were highly respected for the products that they produced. 
They were experts in their field, and they had the ability to share that expertise and teach others. Well, I wanted to be like my grandfather when I was a kid, my, my father and my grandfather. I wanted to learn how things work, too. But at 12 years old, I really hadn't learned very much yet. Of course, that didn't stop a 12-year-old boy. What I do occasionally is I would grab some sort of electrical device like my dad's transistor radio or a space heater or maybe something like my, a mechanical, like my little sister's bicycle, and I would take it apart. You can imagine that, right? 12 years old, take it apart. I thought if I could just take it apart and look at everything, that I might be able to figure out how it worked. So I take apart the transistor radio, my dad's transistor radio, and all I saw with this flat thing with a bunch of little soldered bits on it and all these wires hanging out all over the place. Or when I took apart my, <laughs> my sister's, the front wheel of my sister's bicycle, I pulled the front axle out and all these little steel balls started spilling out all over the floor. Needless to say, I didn't learn very much about how things worked. Even worse, not only did I not learn how things worked, apparently I didn't learn very well how to put them back together again. Do you know that all those wires that I had disconnected were all these different colors? Do you know what I'm not very good at? It's colors. I'm ex- if you don't, for those that don't know, I'm extremely colorblind. So I don't see colors like everybody else does. So you can imagine my fear as a 12-year-old regarding the lack of any noise or sound coming out of my dad's transistor radio after I put it back together and plugged it into the wall. Or the loud and nasty noise that my sister's bicycle was making when not all the little steel balls made it back into the front axle because I couldn't find them all. Yet none of those instances really are ever going to stop a 12-year-old boy. Certainly not me. Eventually, as years went by, I kept learning, kept trying to figure things out, trying to understand how things worked. There's a satisfaction that comes in knowing things. Confidence is built when we understand things. And the question is, is why? Why is that natural to us? It's because God made us that way. He made us to be inquisitive, to learn, to gain understanding, and the ability to use that understanding. It's one of the ways that I believe that God is glorified in his creation is by learning and using those abilities that he's given us. What's more important than learning about our salvation? What is more important than understanding how we're saved? Or how others that we love and we care about can be saved? How does it work? Why does it work? Think about it. God is holy and perfect. He is righteous. He created humans perfectly. But he gave us this thing called a free will. And Adam using his free will, made a wrong choice in Genesis 3. And he chose to sin. 
Because he sinned, Adam brought death unto himself and to all his descendants, even to all of humanity. Consider this, because God is holy and righteous and just, he'd have been perfectly right in just eradicating humanity and starting over. Instead, God decides to save some, and in doing so, it it brings glory to his name. In my opinion, it actually brings more glory than if he had just started over. We'll talk about that another time, but how? how? How does it work? How does salvation work? How can God be righteous and just and also be right in saving us? How does that work? Or as in chapter 3, verse 26 says, how can God be just and be the justifier? It's a paradox. One that we're going to unravel this morning primarily from Romans 3. But let's, before we get into this, let's ask another question. Do we need to know this stuff? Do we need to know these things? I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't exactly easy stuff to learn. Look at, look at the verses in chapter 3, 21 to 26 again. There's some pretty big words in there. Some deep concepts are presented there. Some might say scholarly words or concepts. Is it necessary for a Christian to know these things? Is it necessary to understand how our salvation works? Let me put it another way. Are there any, other, are there any words in the Bible that you, as a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ, don't think you need to know? I don't think so. I think the reason God put them in there is because he expects us to be learning all the days of our life. We're to be constantly learning about him, about his word, about the things that he's done for us through the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. He teaches us these things. Now, that doesn't mean we need to know them immediately or as soon as we become a Christian. Think about how somebody new comes to Christ Paul calls them a babe in Christ. Reminds me of when I started kindergarten in 1969. Didn't graduate high school until 1982. Yes, I know that was 41 years ago. Graduated college in 1984. Took me 15 years from learning my numbers to learning physics. But the point was I was expected to just keep on learning. Even now, some of you know I'm actually in seminary. 58, almost 59. Won't graduate, if I graduate, Lord willing. Won't graduate until I'm 62. The, The intent is that we keep on learning, building on what we previously know. And that's what the Lord requires of us every day as Christians. Until the day we enter into his presence. The question is, how far? How how much? How far does he want us to go? Well, Ephesians 4.13 tells us, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. (laughs) The fullness of Christ. That's a lot to learn, isn't it? a lot to learn for Christians to take on. 
So yes, we have a responsibility intellectually, experientially, relationally to be inquisitive in spiritual things so that we might to continue pursuing spiritual maturity and understanding and so that we can give a defense of our salvation and our faith so that we can share it with others. And the Lord provides an excellent teacher to teach us even, even himself through the Spirit. So we're going to break this down. I've actually entitled this sermon, The Mechanics of Our Salvation. The Mechanics of Our Salvation. Now that's for a guy like me. If you don't like that, you can change that. Maybe you're not into mechanical things like I am. Maybe more, you're of a cook. You could call this the recipe of your salvation. Maybe you're in the medical field. You could call this the anatomy and physiology of your salvation, whatever, whatever works for you. We're going to spend most of our time in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. If you're taking notes, here's how we're going to approach this. We're going to do it in two parts. Part one is going to answer the question, why do we need this salvation? Why? We're going to ask ourselves four quick questions. We're going to answer those. And then part two answers the question, how does this salvation come about? And that's really where we're going to go, and that's what the focus of this, of this message is. We're going to do that by looking at four words. Four words. So hang with me. We're going to ask, a, we're going to look at a few questions to set up the mechanics, and then we're going to define the terms and explain how they fit together. Well, when we consider Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we really need to understand how, how wonderful and incredible this paragraph is. Not, not just in Romans, but the whole Bible. I'm going to drop a few names. Don't know any of these people. Most of them died when I was very young. Donald Barnhouse was the pastor of the 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Many of you have read things uh, commentaries have come out of pastors from that church. It was early in the 20th century, and in his commentary, he, he wrote this. He says, I'm convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important verses in the Bible. That's a big statement. That's a big statement for these six verses. Leon Morris was an Australian Anglican scholar around the same time, early in the 20th century, and he wrote, this is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. By that, I don't mean, I, I think he's talking about more than just the Bible. He's talking about all literature. And Alva McLean, founder and first president of Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana, again, around the same time, he wrote, if I could only have six verses out of the Bible and the rest be taken away, I'd pick these six verses from 21 to 26 because all of God's gospel is there. In other words, what these three scholars and others are saying is that in all the Bible, these six verses are a must-know for a mature Christian. That's what they're saying. It's a must-know for a mature Christian because all of God's gospel is explained here. It's where it all comes together in a way that we can understand how it fits and works for our benefit. So we're going to unpack this. Well, before we can understand how our salvation works, we need to first understand why we need it. 
And that's why I tacked on Romans 1, 16 to 17. So go back to that. Turn back to Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. I'm going to truncate this down just a little bit, these two verses. So follow with me. These are the phrases out of the two verses that are really, you can underline them if you want, that I really want us to look at. The first one is, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Then it is, For in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God is revealed. And then, finally, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, here's Paul's summary statement to his letter to the church in Rome. What he's saying is, the power of God exists in the gospel, and it is there in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed to everyone who believes and lives by faith. Now, what do do we mean by the righteousness of God? Do we mean the inherent righteousness that God possesses in and of himself? No, that's not what we're talking about. God is holy, God is perfect, he is good, he is righteous. That's intrinsic to his character. However, however, what Paul is talking about is a righteousness that God extends to humans to save them. He's talking about God giving his righteousness to us for the purpose of our salvation. And we're going to see that by walking through these four questions. So here's the first question. Question number one to part one. What is it that we were lacking? From this text, what what is it that we were lacking? What we're lacking, or we were lacking before we found Jesus and put our faith in him, what is that that we were lacking? Let's make it broader. What is the world who doesn't know Jesus lacking, according to verses 16 to 17? What were they lacking? Here's the answer. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. His righteousness is packed inside the gospel. The world doesn't naturally have the gospel. They don't naturally have it. They either haven't heard it or they've rejected it. Either way, they don't have the true gospel. Therefore, they're lacking They don't have God's righteousness. They're not aware of it, or they don't believe it, or they don't believe him. Whatever the case, that's what we were lacking. Here's a second question. Well, where does that put us? Where does that put humanity? Where did it put us before we found Christ? If the world is lacking righteousness, then where does that put them? Well, that's Paul's subject for the equivalent of two chapters. From the very next verse, chapter 118, all the way to chapter 320, right before our text starts, Paul unpacks where that leaves us. And to summarize, it leaves us under God's wrath. Romans 118 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, but those without the gospel, they're not aware of his righteousness. 
They're unrighteous. They're ungodly in every way. So instead, what's revealed from heaven then, verse 18, is that all humanity is placed under God's wrath. Now, we don't have time for, to unpack all of what that means. In fact, Paul really doesn't get to what that means until later in Romans. But I would say that physical and eternal death are the biggest parts of that. But there's even more to it than that. And what Paul does is he's spending the next two chapters from 118 to 320 breaking down all, any philosophy or false belief that we might have about ourselves or what the world believes about itself so that we don't have a leg to stand on. No one has a leg to stand on. And really, it's an amazing two chapters to study. In the chapter 1, he goes after all of mankind who are unrighteous or ungodly. They've ignored God or they've rejected God. God's judgment or wrath. Was that me? Was that? Maybe that was me. God's wrath and judgment, there it goes. <laughs> Am I still on? Hey, here we go. Okay. <laughs> We're overcomers. God's wrath and judgment begins on earth. The end of Romans 1, where he lets sinners go to whatever level of sinful passion or desire that they have. That's what it says at the end of chapter 1. He will let them go to whatever level of sin that they want to commit. And it heaps more judgment, more wrath on themselves. But then in chapter 2, in case we in the church think we're better than anybody... He goes after the one in the church who judges sinners. Paul writes to those sitting in church pews that if you, if, you judge, if you judge sinners, you too will face the same judgment. He says, because you're doing the same things. Well, maybe we're doing them in secret. Then he gets into chapters 2 and 3. Paul goes after the Jews who rely on any adherence to Old Testament law and their heritage, specifically the promises made to Abraham for their salvation. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about Israel in the Old Testament, Old Testament law. Of course, we just went through Deuteronomy, and it was all about that. And just to remind ourselves, here's why it's so important. God gave his law to his people, the Israelites. And he told them, if you keep my commandments, it will go well for you. But if you break my commandments, you'll suffer my wrath. Problem, the problem that the Israelites is, or they're just like us. They're sinners. So what the Old Testament law showed the world through the story of Israel is that God's law cannot be kept by human ambition. Can't be. Human ambition is not enough to keep the law. Everyone falls short. We fall short because we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. When you look at the middle part of chapter 3, that's Paul's conclusion. Verse 11 in chapter 3, none is righteous, not even one. 
Verse 12, all have turned aside and become worthless. And again, no one does good, not even one. So what Paul is doing for the equivalent of those two chapters between our text pretty much destroys every worldly philosophy or argument that people use to give themselves hope. Even God's chosen people of Israel couldn't save themselves. He destroys all the human arguments and says, without God's righteousness, you're all under wrath. Everyone will suffer. He makes no mistake about that. And that brings us to the third question, what do we need? What do we need? Well, if what humanity is lacking is righteousness or a right standing with God, and that puts us under God's wrath, and what we need is a righteousness that isn't our own. We need a righteousness that isn't our own because we don't have any. And now we're going to jump into our text. So, so go to Romans 30. I'm sorry, Romans 30. There is no Romans 30. Romans 3. <laughs> go to Romans 3. Paul in Romans 3.23, Paul summarizes everything that we just wrote by saying, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And now he's picking back up where we were in chapter 1. We've fallen short because we lack righteousness. We need to receive something we don't have to meet God's standard. We need a righteousness that comes from somewhere outside of ourselves. And the final question is, where are we going to find this righteousness? Where are we going to find a righteousness that is not our own? Do you know the answer? Jesus. Jesus. Verse 21 in chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or extended apart from the law, and it has been extended to humans through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're about to unpack in these verses is, how does that happen? How does that happen? How is God, who is perfect, holy, righteous, and just, who cannot allow sin in his presence, how is he able to extend his righteousness to filthy, wretched, corruptible sinners like you and me? How can he be just and the justifier of sinners? We know the answer is through Jesus, but how? How does God make this happen? How do we make sense of it? Well, this is part two. How does our salvation come about? We answered the four questions, the why we need it. How does it come about? This is the heart of the the message this morning, the mechanics of our salvation. I'm going to give you four key words out of verses 24, 25, or really about four phrases. Are justified through redemption as propitiation by faith. Those are the four words or phrases that we're going to unpack here. This is how our pure, holy, and righteous God restores relationships with sinners. So for the remainder of our time, we're going to unpack these words and see how they fit into the flow of the paragraph. And the first one is justified or justification. Paul says that sinners are justified. 
Well, think about it. Where have you ever heard that word justified before? Most common place I can think of is a justifiable homicide. Okay? Here's what the story is. Imagine this story. Story is an, is an intruder enters a home with the intent to do harm. Father, husband, grabs a shotgun to defend his family. The intruder t- attacks and is killed. Father is arrested for committing homicide. Why is he arrested? Because a man died. Somebody needs to sort it out. Question is, was this homicide self-defense? So they head to court. The evidence is heard for and against. Decision is made. It's declared self-defense. It is declared it was a justifiable homicide. Here's the point. Justified or justification is a legal term. It is a legal determination or declaration. What God is saying as he inspires Paul to write here is that we have been declared justified. We have been declared righteous by the highest authority. It does not mean that we were made righteous. That's an ongoing process by a different name. It means that we've been declared justified by God. And if we've been declared justified by God, therefore we have been declared righteous by him. But the emphasis here is on the declaration. It is the opposite of being condemned. If the father was found to have committed unjustifiable homicide, then he would have been declared guilty and condemned to prison. We were condemned in our sins. But now we have been declared justified. We have been declared righteous. But there's more. By what? Verse 24 says his grace. His grace. Why by grace? Why is grace involved in this? Because we're guilty. We're guilty. We just said in our four questions, we're all guilty. Here's where the illustration that I gave actually falls apart. The father wasn't guilty. We deserve the punishment for sin. We are guilty. And yet God declares us justified, and it can only be by his grace because we are guilty. Notice something else about this declaration of righteousness in verse 24. It's given as a gift. It's given as a gift. Now, the English Standard Version translates the original Greek as a gift. I kind of like the translation is freely. God's grace is given freely. You can't earn it. Nothing you can do to earn it. We're guilty. The only thing any one of us in this room has ever earned is condemnation. But his grace is given freely. His grace is given to us freely. Our justification is available to us to take and hold on to. That's not all. Verse 24 
our justification comes to us through something. Okay, well, what does it come through? It comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, we, we hear that word in church often. What does it mean? <laughs> when I was a kid, we used to sing about it. See if you know this one. I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Saved by the Holy Ghost I am. All my sins are washed away. I've been redeemed. Now you know why I'm not in a choir. And that row over there in about 15 minutes are going to say, Rick, don't ever, Dad, don't ever do that again. <clears throat> How many have ever heard that song or sung that song? Good, I'm glad it wasn't a Northern Baptist thing. <clears throat> but as a kid, here's the point. Did I really know what the word redemption meant? Do I know what redemption meant? Because we don't use that word very often in our modern language. Other than my mom might have redeemed coupons at a grocery store as part of her purchase. But is that the fullest meaning of the word redemption? To save a few dollars on a grocery bill. No, in ancient biblical history, the true meaning of being redeemed involves the slave market. What's more serious than slavery? A slave would be put up for sale by his owner. And another slave owner would pay a ransom to take ownership of the slave. And once the transaction was complete, the new owner could bring the slave into his home or he could set him free. And no one could bring a newly freed slave back into slavery because the new owner had full rights over this slave that he set free. He was truly free. That's what God does for sinners. He paid the ransom that was due for sinners who are enslaved to Satan and to sin. Listen to the words of Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 3. He says to Christians, he said, You were dead in, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Folks, that's a picture of slavery. Sinners don't have a choice. This is who they are. They're enslaved to sin. They're following their slave owner who is Satan. And it says that they're children of wrath. Jesus talked a lot about this in John 8. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sinners love their freedom. Sinners love to do what they want, especially in America. Talk about how we cannot be enslaved to one another according to U.S. law, and thank the Lord for that. But what sinners fail to understand is that while they celebrate their earthly freedom by not being earthly enslaved, all are spiritually enslaved to Satan, according to Ephesians 2. 
They're spiritually enslaved to the world and to sin. They are not truly free. However, Jesus gives an alternative also in John 8, verse 35 to 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How is the slave set free? It's because a transaction has been made to buy their freedom. That transaction is their redemption by Christ Jesus. By the way, the slave owner, the new slave owner, consider the value that he places on the sinner that he just bought, who's enslaved. Again, we're not talking about coupons or redeeming coupons to save a few dollars on a grocery bill. We're talking about people who are in tremendous pain and suffering suffering from their own sin and the sin of others. Talking about some who commit deliberate and sometimes even heinous sins. We're talking about people who live terribly with everything that we would read if we read the end of Romans 1. Summarized by people with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and malice, these are people who follow the course of this world, of their slave owner, Satan. And yet Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's redemption. And the motive for the new owner to redeem sinners is love. It's love. Do you know that about God? The one who bought you and paid for you? The reason God saved you is because he loves you. The reason he saved me is because he loves me. It is unimaginable that a holy, perfect, righteous God would love holy, corruptible sinners who commit tremendous evil. But the simple fact is he does. He places incredible value on you because he loves you and he loves me. So the sinner is redeemed from sin. He's declared justified. They've been set free. But what was the payment? What was transacted? The answer is blood. Jesus' blood is the transaction that gave way to, according to our text, propitiation. Big word, right? If redeemed is a less used word in the English language, then propitiation is a never used word in the English language. No one has ever said, honey, I'm going to the office to propitiate myself today. To which my wife would look at that and say, "Um, okay, can you stop by Kroger on the way home? Propitiate. Nobody's ever used that word. Propitiation actually only occurs four times in the New Testament. The question is, what does it mean? And how does it tie in? 
Well, propitiation means appeasement or satisfaction. Who needs to be appeased or satisfied for our redemption to be legitimate? God. The most high God who created the heavens and the earth. Who cannot tolerate sin in his presence because he is holy and righteous. Humanity's offense is against him. He's the one who must be satisfied for the transaction to occur. And he was satisfied by putting his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. To understand how this works, we, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Propitiation, I said, occurs only four times in the New Testament. But if you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would find that same word, propitiation, used over 20 times in the Old Testament. And it's used in reference to what is called the mercy seat. Again, knowing these things is important. You may recall after the Exodus that God instructed the Israelites to fashion something called the Ark of the Covenant, among other things, the tabernacle and everything else. But the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was a chest that was carried around with these long poles And inside the ark, inside this chest, were the Ten Commandments, or the law, that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. The cover of the ark of the covenant was called the mercy seat. You may recall the Old Testament sacrificial, uh, sacrificial system. Blood from an unblemished, innocent lamb was used to atone or pay for the sins of the people. And this blood was continually poured on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant by priests as God instructed them in the law. And here's what that would symbolize. Inside the Ark was the law of God, and the law pointed to the people's sinfulness. Blood being poured over the mercy seat covered the contents of the Ark or the law which accuses sinners. God would look, proverbially look down, and see the innocent blood covering the law. It appeased his wrath. And because he was satisfied by that, God extended his mercy to Israel in the forgiveness of sins, at least temporarily. All of that, as God instituted it, was an act of grace. That was the old covenant. We live in the new covenant. The new covenant is that God still meets with us at the mercy seat or propitiation, only now it's the cross. Jesus was the final sacrifice whose innocent blood was spilled on the cross. So when God looks down on us as sinners, what he sees is the blood of Jesus that covers us. His blood covers our sin. His wrath is appeased. He is satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice, and mercy is extended to us. Jesus is our propitiation. 
Jesus is the only place where God meets with humans. We are redeemed, the transaction is complete, and we are justified or declared righteous. Those are the mechanics of our salvation. But there's one more. There's one more in our text. The last term in verse 25 is to be received by faith. You can pause and recognize here, recognize something before we go on. Everything I just talked about, everything, justification, redemption, propitiation, God has done all of that. He's done all of it. He declares somebody justified. He pays the ransom. He gives his son as propitiation. He allows his wrath to be appeased, and he sets the sinner free. So far, we've done nothing in any of this. But there is something we must do. And all of, all of this truth is to be received by faith. We must believe. So the question then is, well, what is true faith? Faith is believing in God's promises. It's believing that all of this is true. Not just believing his promises to be true as if we're agreeing with a set of facts that we read a book and say, ah, Jesus died died on the cross. I believe that Jesus lived. I believe he died. Instead, what we mean is we're actively trusting, intimately depending on the work that God has done as if our life depended on it because it does. It's actively, intimately depending on God. We believe that we will be saved only because God has said, this is the way. We believe and trust For all it's worth. That's true faith. Salvation is believing that God is extending his righteousness to us through Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone. In him alone and his extension of righteousness because we don't have any righteousness. That's it. And that's the answer to the tension that we find in verse 26. Notice that tension in verse 26, that God might be just and the justifier. How does God hold, here's the question, how does God hold the line in his holiness, righteousness, and perfection? His character requires that he be just and not let us get away with sin. And yet, if he doesn't do something about it, we don't have a chance. Humanity doesn't stand a chance. No human can overcome sin. We're all guilty. None of us can pay the penalty of sin. Only God could do something about it, and he did, through the God-man Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is both just and the justifier, three persons in one. So the final question I have as I close this morning. Do you have faith in the Most High God? Do you have faith in the one who extends his righteousness to you because you recognize that you don't have any righteousness of your own that will save you? Or are you ignoring, rejecting by not believing and trusting in Jesus?
My prayer is that you choose to believe. If you need help making that decision, making that choice, you have questions, you want to walk through it, you want to talk about it, we're here to help you. That's why we're here. Or as you head towards the exit this morning, there's a room on the right just before you leave called Crossroads. There'll be a pastor in there. can meet with you, answer questions, pray with you. Sometimes the first step in faith is veering off the trail that we would normally take onto a trail that would lead us to Jesus. And for the rest of us who are Christians, it is important that we know these things. It is. I know it's hard. It's important that we know, know these things. Don't, don't stop learning about our God. Don't stop learning about what, who he is or what he's done for us so that we can all attain the maturity and the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. He will transform your life and you will be able, be equipped to share it with others. We're here to help in that process. Let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your word. What a great paragraph. Yes, scholarly concepts, justification, redemption, propitiation, words that we never consider or use. And yet we can understand them simply. But it's hard to do, it's hard to know and understand your word by ourselves. These things are what your word says are spiritually discerned. Therefore, we need the Holy Spirit. So, Father, continue to teach us in our personal study, our corporate study, not just so that we can elevate our own intellect, but so that we can be transformed by your words, by your spirit, and we can share these things with confidence with others that we might also have the joy of seeing others saved. Thank you, Father, for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.